0: While you're getting back to your seats, isn't it cool that we had Mission India here and we had Indian food for dinner? Yeah. So I, of course, talked to the, the kitchen staff and I said, so if next week is like Mission China, I don't know if that's a thing. It probably is. I said, do you serve Chinese food? And they said, no, it's always Indian food. I was like, so we just got the perfect week. Look at that. The whole thing It was like an immersion. Well, anyway, tonight we get to conclude this series of conversations on the Sermon on the Mount. And and in some ways, I'm just so excited that we had this time together. And in some ways, I was like, we need to have like 12 more sessions because there's a whole bunch of other stuff that you need to hear about. But we just get one more. So I picked one, and and I'm super excited to share with you. Uh, But as we've said all along, the Sermon on the Mount is without question the most famous and impactful teaching in human history. Um, It's changed the world, and it's still changing the world. Um, and, and just to kind of remind you where we started this journey on Sunday morning, uh, we said that the Sermon on the Mount isn't Jesus handing out more rules to follow. Instead, he's attempting to show people like you and me how to live a better kind of life here and now, something, something that we call the with God life, a life lived in relationship with God, a life lived along the rhythms that he has established for us and wants to bless us in. And, and so, uh, to get us going for our conversation tonight, I wanna tell you about a conversation that I've had more than a few times. Um, I've had it in coffee shops and on airplanes and at high school football games. I've had it with young moms who drive red minivans, retired dads who drive Corvettes, and college students who drive, oh, I have a funny picture and I missed my joke, who drive mopeds. Anybody moped fan club in the house? I have some millennials in my life and there's something about like the 1980s moped they're absolutely fascinated with. And when I challenge them on it, they say two things. They say, number one, student loans are no joke. And that's true. They also say the gas mileage is awesome. And I said, but I have four kids. I can't possibly get four kids on a minivan or on on a moped. And they say, well, you can get a trailer. So I'm still looking for a trailer that holds four kids. But anyway, the conversations that I'm talking about always begin with small talk. I run into somebody, we talk about, you know, our kids, we talk about the weather, and eventually, you know, they ask, you know, what do you do for a living? And when I tell them what I do for a living um, and that I've served as a pastor for over 20 years now, the response is, um, it's always interesting, right? Uh, And and people generally respond in one of three ways when someone they don't know and they strike up a conversation with tells them they're a pastor. Uh, The people who love church and you can tell that right away. They get a huge smile across their face. And they tell me about how awesome their church is and their pastor is and their choir is. And they ask me how good my choir is. And I have to tell them I don't have a choir, but I like choirs. Not a lot, but I like them a little bit, right? Yeah. And, um, and that's that's kind of group one. Well, group two are the people who don't like church so much. And this is awesome. When they find out they don't like church and I'm a pastor, they generally don't get a great big smile on their face and they begin to slowly back away while disengaging from the conversation as quickly as possible after apologizing for using profanity. That's just how that goes. It's almost like, it's almost like um, if you walked up to someone and they said, Oh yeah, I just got my results back and I'm, I have the coronavirus." You go, Oh, that's so nice to meet you. That's kind of how it feels to be a pastor with some people. Um, A few people though, uh, and these are the ones that I want to key in on. They open up and they tell me why they used to be church people, but aren't church people anymore. Uh, and it's amazing how similar their stories are. Uh, they would say they grew up in church, but at some point they decided that it just didn't work. And sometimes they actually use those words. I just don't think church works because they'll say, like, I've I've watched church people closely. And over the time, I, I started to notice that church people did a lot of really un-Jesusy things. One guy said to me, you know, I think church people, they aren't any better at life than people that don't go to church. Uh, they're no more generous or patient or kind or gracious or mature or committed. Uh, they're no less judgmental. And then he goes, actually, they're often a lot more judgmental. And eventually these people, after sort of data collecting, they, they get to a spot where they go, I, I just don't know if the whole church thing is really worth the trouble. And one guy remember said to me, so I just decided to take an indefinite leave of absence. (laughs) And I thought that was at least creative, right? Well, after a few of these conversations, I found myself asking a really great question. uh, And it goes like this. uh, Why do so many Christians seem largely unaffected by their faith in Jesus? Like, why is it? And maybe you've asked this question before. Uh, maybe you have had a season where you wondered if, if this whole Christianity thing works. Maybe you even took a break for a time uh, because of that thought. And if that's you, welcome back. Great. Um, but I, want, I believe the answer to that question has a lot to do with our topic for tonight, because tonight we get to explore the mission that Jesus gave his followers in the world. And it's a mission that really does have the potential to make their lives better and to make the world better. But it, but it's also a mission that Christians will naturally drift away from if we're not intentional about reminding ourselves who we are and what we're doing here. It's a mission that calls us to follow Jesus, to make disciples who make disciples. I know what the Great Commission is. Thank you. <laughs> Did the question. Thing. Okay, yeah. Anyway, um, to follow Jesus and do things that set us apart, from people who do not yet have a relationship with God, while at the same time remaining engaged with people who don't yet have a relationship with God. As said more simply, followers of Jesus are called to be in the world, but not of the world. In the world, but not of the world. And so Jesus describes this mission very near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, So just one more time, a bit of context, 2,000 years ago, Jesus led his disciples up a hill near the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and before giving them any specifics about the way he wanted them to do life, he presented them with their mission using very strange language. Here's how he said it. He said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, to which 2,000 years later, we're like, yeah, he did it again. I have no idea what he's talking about. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? And I think the answer is it can't. But how do you lose saltiness? We'll get to that. Uh, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and tr- trampled underfoot. And so you see what I mean? Like strange language. Apparently, before we go any farther, we have to talk a little bit about salt, Um, It was a really big deal in the ancient world. Not only did it serve to preserve fish and meat, think jerky, and make almost anything taste better, think french fries, hallelujah, right? It had an unexpected use in homes. Uh, People in the Middle East in the first century and in Israel used animal droppings as fuel in their ovens. Here's a picture of a manure burning oven like the ones used in the first century. You will find this one at a tourist attraction to show you what life was like. Aren't you glad you came tonight? There you go, right? Um, Anyway, um, if it strikes you as disgusting that they would use animal droppings as fuel in their fire, you should know that there really isn't much wood in the Middle East. Uh, Read almost none. And so even to this day, they have to find other things to burn. And to me, this is a great example of one of my favorite life principles. Scarcity breeds creativity. Because none of us have ever looked at animal droppings and thought, you know, I bet I could burn that in my fire and do something productive with it, right? Um, well, in order to make the animal droppings burn hotter and longer in their ovens, people in the first century would mix them with salt, uh, right? And over time, though, the salt would be would lose its saltiness. So the salt would kind of be done when all the animal droppings had dissolved and they could reuse the salt to a point. But eventually, the salt lost the qualities that made it effective. And when it was no longer fit for being mixed with manure, the salt was just thrown out. And, and, and so the image is a bit dramatic, honestly. But Jesus wanted his followers to understand something. He's about to give them the tools to build a better life and a better world. He's about to invite them to say no to what comes naturally and instead to pursue a radically new way to be human. He's about to reveal to them how to engage in a with God sort of life right here in the midst of this life, a life where they they work to rid their hearts of non-redemptive anger, a life in which they leverage nonviolent resistance to bring about real and lasting change, a a life in which they love their enemies and pray for people who harass and oppress them, a life in which they pursue self-sacrifice and radical generosity, a life where they become an increasingly non-anxious presence in the world, a life where they look radically different from people who don't know Jesus, a life in which they had set themselves apart on purpose and for a purpose. And Jesus wanted them to know that when they actually did this, when they actually built their life on the blueprints that he drafted for them, it's almost like they would be like the salt of the earth. In other words, they were to mix with people who knew nothing of God without starting to look like the people who knew nothing of God. And so, because in order to repair the world, you you must be in the world, but not of the world. Or said a little more simply, when followers of Jesus start to look like everyone else, we lose our ability to help everyone else. We become like salt that's lost its saltiness. And, and so in this passage, Jesus warns his followers about their natural propensity to lose their distinctiveness by being seduced by their culture, and the things that their culture is going to tell them is normal. Moreover, he's warning them because this cultural assimilation will happen without them even trying, because if you think about it, every culture is like this. Our broader culture is certainly like this. There's a current that flows through culture. It's a current where it sort of determines what's normal and acceptable behavior for everyone else. And if you're not intentional about setting yourself apart, you're just going to pick your feet up and be carried along by the current of that culture, and you will end up in the same place as everyone else. We we can't let the people around us determine what is normal and acceptable behavior if we want to follow Jesus, because he wants to set us apart to show a, a better way. And he wants us to acknowledge and to live into the reality that what is normal and acceptable is not always helpful. And so he came and he walked among us and he modeled a counterintuitive and distinctive and beautiful and better way to live. And then he said three beautiful words to every single one of us. Come, follow me. But see, when followers of Jesus lose sight of that mission, people on the outside of faith looking in begin to wonder if Jesus, if following him is really worth it because it doesn't seem to make that much difference outside of where you spend 90 minutes or so on a Sunday morning. Years ago, one of my favorite authors, a priest by the name of Brendan Manning, put it this way, and and I love this quote. He said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. He said that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. In other words, Christians, us, when we merge into cultural norms, we may inadvertently keep other people from seriously considering a commitment to following Jesus. Now, on the other hand, Christians who commit to following Jesus with their lifestyle embody his way in in a way that is, compelling and captivating for people who are seeking truth. And by the way, we are surrounded by people outside of faith who are seeking truth every day. And they're looking around, trying to make sense of the world we're in. Is there? Is there another way? Is there a better way? Because my way isn't working. And then when we actually follow Jesus, his light shines through our lives. And it's interesting, Jesus actually says that as he continues this talk. In the next verse, he says, you are the light of the world. So so first you're the salt, now you're the light. And Jesus' disciples, to be fair, they would have anticipated a teaching like this because they knew that they had been invited to follow Jesus in order to become like Jesus. They wanted to know what he knew so they could be the kind of people that he was. And Jesus was fond of saying things like this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, following Jesus, like literally doing what he says to do. um, In doing that, his disciples had the ability to carry light into the darkest places in the world. And that light had the potential to bring hope to otherwise hopeless people. And so Jesus says to his first followers on a hill on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. They, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. And it's it's almost like what's interesting, too, um, the first century Jews, when you said the house in this sort of context, they believed that the world was God's house, all of it. And so with this passage, Jesus is addressing the tendency of some religious people to withdraw into self contained communities with others who share their commitments and it's easy to see why we do this and I throw myself right in this right this is why we do this because it's safer and it's less messy and it's more comfortable but Jesus says listen when you do that when you do that you're unable to share the light of your faith the light of Christ with those outs on the outside it's like when we do that we are putting their light under a bowl and so Jesus says to all of us listen guys The light that you carry isn't just for your sake, but it's for the sake of the world. Not only are you called to be set apart from the world in your behavior, you're called to remain in the world for the benefit of the world. You're supposed to live the Jesus life for the world to see. So as Jesus continues, he says this, he says, "Um, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, it's like Jesus says, listen, your good deeds actually let light out into a dark world. And those good deeds, that light that shines will catch the attention of people living in darkness and cause them to look up and maybe even to connect with their creator. It's like every time you serve without expecting to get anything in return, every time you show grace to someone who doesn't deserve grace, every time you're patient when inconvenienced, every time you send an encouraging note or card, every time you visit someone in a hospital or in a retirement community, every time you stop to help someone in need, it's like you set yourself apart from the norm and you release a little light into the world. You make the world a little brighter and you may even inspire others to do The same. Friends, that's why, as followers of Jesus, we're to live the way of Jesus so the world can come to know Jesus. Well, you should know that this mission to be in, not of, didn't actually originate with Jesus. Uh, 1,500 years earlier, uh, the descendants of a man named Israel were rescued by God from slavery in Egypt. And approximately 40 days later, they reached a mountain called Sinai and they entered a very special relationship with God. Uh, Last year, around this time, my wife and I uh, were in Israel. It was a very, 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 very hot day. Uh, And we went for a hike in the Sinai mountain range, not for the faint of heart. I think the heat index that day was like 107. It was just great. And there's tons of shade, as you can tell, right? Um, Yeah, we went through lots of water and no one needed a rest stop for a bathroom break. It was pretty, pretty wild. Um, But it was in terrain like this, that God gave his people a special mission. And the Old Testament book of Exodus records the language God used when addressing his people. Here's what he said. He said, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. And the word treasured possession in the Hebrew language is the word segula. Can you say segula? And it's the same word a Hebrew uh, guy would use when proposing to a Hebrew girl who had captured his heart. It's like it means I've considered all the other options in the world and you're the one for me. So to the ancient Jews, they saw what happened at Sinai as a sort of marriage between God and people. And so check out how the people respond to the proposal. I love this. So the people all responded together. We do. (laughs) We will do everything the Lord has said, which, of course, they didn't. But that's another story for another day, right? We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. In essence, God says to the people, will you marry me? And they say, yes. And what's amazing, too, is this happens actually before God tells them what they even have to do. Uh, within, these com- uh, the, within this context, the ancient Jews literally saw the Ten Commandments as their wedding vows. But, but not only was there a wedding, this was a wedding with a purpose uh, because this is what God tells them. He, he tells them, but you are a chosen people. Actually, hold on. That's the wrong verse. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. So let me back up. So the people say, we will do everything that the Lord has asked us to do. God calls ancient Israel to set themselves apart for a very specific reason. They were to bless the world, to show the world what God was like by the way they lived their lives. Again, they were to be in the world, not of the world. God calls them a kingdom of priests. And a priest is someone who helps other people do business with God. And so God selects the children of Israel. And he says, listen, I'm going to bless you because I want to shine a light to the world through you. You're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you obey me and fully keep my command, not only will you be my treasured possession, though all the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this was the context into which Jesus' first followers were raised. And it was into this context that he pointed them again, only this time, and this is huge, God hadn't just invited the nation of Israel to be the light of the world. He invited all of us who place our faith in Jesus. In fact, the language of Mount Sinai surfaces again in a letter to New Testament Christians. Peter, one of Jesus' first disciples, says it this way. He says, but you, this is again Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Segula, again, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Then he just throws down. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy it's like where did we become the people of god he says when you accepted the sacrifice of christ when you believed that his blood shed on the cross restored peace with god you received the mercy you have a new identity once you were not a people now you are god's people you have a new identity you have a new purpose you have a new mission and, and Peter's not even done he keeps going he says dear friends i urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war- wage war against your soul maybe you don't know this and i you know this is maybe news to some of us right but when you say yes to jesus you still have sinful impulses Ta-da. right yeah and so peter's like saying listen because of your new identity you need to stop behaving like you used to behave Because God has a purpose for your life. He's going to show you how to live a better life. It's better for you. It's better for the world. Walk away from those sinful desires, which weighs war on your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. Speaking of people that haven't said yes to Jesus yet. that, That although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And I love this, because to me, this is the mission. This is the mission into which you and I have been invited. This is who we are. This is what we're doing here. Uh, This is the mission that so easily slips out of focus when life gets busy. Friends, this is the mission that changed the world and still changes the world. And and if you're here this week at camp and you've said yes to Jesus, this is your mission too, as an individual, to be in the world, but not of the world. Not to earn anything with God, but because of this incredible gift you have been given, because you have found some light. And so you need to share some light. Your Heavenly Father, who loves you more than you can possibly imagine, has chosen you and me to show the world what he is like. You might even say it this way, he's trusted us with his reputation. And so the only question that remains is whether or not we will choose day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, to live into that mission, to shine the light of Jesus into our world to share the gospel and to live the gospel. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, every time I brush up against this content, I find myself uh, convicted of how easily I forget who I am and what I am to be doing here. Thank you for the words of your son that ring so true thousands of years after he spoke them. Thank you for trusting us with your reputation. We we acknowledge that we do not always carry your, your name well. We desire to do it better. May we stay connected to the reality of that from which we were rescued. Give us a strong desire to share that truth of your love with the world. But for this moment, we just say thank you. Thank you for this place. Thank you for this community. Thank you for whispering to us during our time away from the normal rhythms of life. May we emerge from this week more committed to following Jesus. It is in his matchless name that we pray. Everyone said, amen.